Amen. All right, so we're looking at the big picture of the Bible. And the idea is that the story of the Bible is God having his hand over everything. He is in complete control um, of the story. It's his story. Um, and ultimately, his will, what he wants for the world and for us, it is going to happen. Even though sometimes man comes against his will and Satan comes against his will, ultimately, God is so in control of the big picture of the story, and that's so encouraging in my life. Um, so, the first thing to look at is, in the story, we're going to look at just a couple different ideas of what is the story, where do we see Jesus, and what part do we play? So the first question is, where is the story? So in the beginning, you guys know, God created the heavens and the earth. He creates everything in this gigantic flash of light and amazingness. And in the center of this universe, he creates a planet called Earth and a place in Earth called the Garden of Eden, which is this perfect paradise, this place of unimaginable beauty that is just amazing. And, and it's perfect. Everyone is happy. Um, everyone is just in love and everything is wonderful and there's no sin. Um, there's no evil. It's just God with his family. And God creates Adam and Eve, as you guys know. And that's the start of his family. Now, this is something that, um, it's kind of speculation. Um, the Bible talks about something in a couple passages in Isaiah and a few other places about what we call the fall of Lucifer. And um, I can't tell you the exact time this happens. I personally believe that it happened some point after the creation of the earth. And this is not fact, okay? This is what's called speculation. It is basically me um, looking at the facts that scripture presents and kind of just coming up with a theory. So just be careful that you know this is just a theory. But we know that Satan's problem was pride. Um, I think that God was probably communicating to the angels um, what his plan was. And he probably told them his plan was to create humans and to love them and to give them power and to make them his family. I personally think that probably didn't set right with Lucifer. Lucifer, as we know, was a high angel. He was somebody who was a worship leader in heaven. He was somebody who had a lot of power. Um, he basically gets to the point where he thinks, God doesn't know what he's doing. I could do it better than him. I could be a god. And that's the exact lie he tells Adam and Eve, as we know. So Satan, Lucifer, this angel, starts talking to the other angels saying, listen, guys, we should go against God. We could be better than God. We could be gods ourselves. Why do we need God? Well, God hears this, obviously, and then that is what starts this great war in heaven where Lucifer is cast down and cast out of heaven for his pride. And we know the Bible tells us that Lucifer took one-third of the angels with him. And that's just crazy to me that he was able to convince one-third of the angels who were in heaven who saw God and his amazingness. If you think sometimes, like, man, I'm so dumb for falling for Satan's tricks, angels who were in heaven in God's presence fell for Satan's tricks. So he's very persuasive. God doesn't stand for it, though, and he casts Satan out of heaven banishes him from his kingdom and this war between satan and god begins where satan's basically saying god i tried to go against you you kicked me out i'm gonna do everything i can to destroy your family you need to know that satan hates you he hates me because we're god's family he hates our love for god because he hates everything about god and who he is so the next part of the story is we see that god creates 
Adam and Eve. And I thought that was great in the video where it talked about how the Hebrew word for Adam was humanity and the Hebrew word for Eve was life. God's literally saying with his two first people, humanity and life, my family on earth, you are going to bring life and beauty and, and all these great things to the planet. I thought that was wonderful. So we come to something that we're going to go over a lot in this series, which is a covenant. And a covenant is an agreement. It's basically a partnership. And God is always making these types of covenants. So the first covenant is between God and earth and God gets, or God and humanity, um, God and Adam and God and Eve. It's the first covenant. It's called the Edenic covenant. And basically the idea is obey God, take care of the earth, watch over the animals and start a family. God's saying, okay, I've given you the earth. I've given you everything in the earth. We've got to start somewhere. So Adam, I've got a very special job for you. You need to obey me, take care of the earth, garden it, watch over it. I'm giving you these animals, name them, watch over them, be their friend, be their caretaker. And I want you and Eve to start having some kids. It's going to be awesome. God promises some things to Adam and Eve. He, he, there's some guarantees of this covenant. One is friendship with God. He's saying, I will be with you. I'll be here with you. The Bible tells us that Adam and Eve walked in the garden with God. They, they talked to him. They spoke to him. They had this amazing friendship. Um, God would be their father. He would provide all their needs. And Eden was supposed to be a reflection of heaven on earth. In the beginning, God creates heaven, and then he creates earth. And the idea is he creates this planet where it's supposed to be a reflection of what heaven is. And he creates humans, and he wants to experience this perfect paradise. It's literally a, a heaven on earth. Um, but what we see is that things didn't go as planned. Because Satan is deceptive. He comes to earth, and he takes on the disguise of a snake. Adam and Eve, I mean, I'm assuming, and this is again a speculation, but, you know, it's funny that the snake comes up, if you guys know the story, and talks to Eve, and I imagine him sounding like that snake in, um, you know, uh, the Jungle Book, the one who's like, I can't even do it, trust in me, I can't, I can't do it, but he comes up, and he's all sneaky, like, it's, the fact that the Bible doesn't say that, like, Eve freaked out that the snake talked, make me think that maybe the animals could talk, I don't know, that's, Maybe it was just, you know, it was so new and she'd only been alive for so long that, you know, when a snake comes up and starts talking to you, you've never not seen that. So maybe it just made sense. Like maybe she was just like, okay, all the animals can't talk, but the snake can. But whatever, a snake comes up and it's Lucifer in disguise, either possessing a snake or just embodying the form of it. And he comes up and he says, did God really say don't eat the fruit? Because I think... If you eat the fruit, you're going to be just like God. You'll become a God yourself. This has always been Satan's lie. It's been that pride to say what God says, don't listen to that. That's not true. You can be a God yourself. And that, that really is at the core of Satan's message to the world. And some people wouldn't, wouldn't say it like that. People like Kanye West would say, I am a God. Um, but really that's the core is I don't answer to anybody. I don't have to obey anybody. I make my own rules. I am a God. That is what the world is trying to sell. That's what Lucifer is trying to sell. And he deceives Eve to get her to eat the fruit. And in doing so, the covenant is broken. This agreement that you will obey God and in exchange, he'll provide all these awesome things for you. This covenant is broken. And Sin is entered into the world. This, this disease, this blackness that takes over our hearts. The, 
the word of God said that you would die. And they were thinking like they dropped dead. Um, which, by the way, if, if, well, I guess they didn't have any concept of what death was. So that makes more sense. But for me, if someone told me like, hey, if you eat this, you'll die. I probably, if a snake came up to me and was like, no, trust me, it's fine. I probably wouldn't be like, oh, okay, I'll eat it. Um, but no one ever, no one had ever died before. So maybe Eve was thinking, oh, it's probably not that bad. Well, it absolutely was bad. Introducing sin into the world created this disease that affects all of us to this day. And what ends up happening is God realizes he can have no part with sinful man. God knew all along he could have no part with sin. So Adam and Eve realized for the first time that they're naked and that they're ashamed. And so they're cast out of the garden. And you need to understand this wasn't God saying, I hate you. Get out of here. How dare you disobey me? I'm going to go start over somewhere else. God has always loved his people. But what God ends up doing is he can't have any part of sin. He's perfect holiness and sin is 100% perfect evil. And so God has to create this wall of separation. And what he ends up doing is he kills a lamb. You guys know the story. God's rule is someone has to die. God could have just killed Adam and Eve and said, all right, I'm going to make new people. You guys failed. Let's just keep doing this until I get a batch of people who actually listen to me. But instead of killing them for their sin, which is what they deserved, and which is what all of us deserve for our sin, according to God's law, God does the first animal sacrifice. He kills a lamb, and he uses the blood of the lamb to cover the sins of Adam and Eve, and he uses the skin of the lamb to clothe their nakedness. So, um, there's a great song by Phil Wickham called Eden that just, you get this sense that this is Adam's thought process after leaving Eden. Um, I, that's that's the way I read this song. It's Adam. It's not Phil saying, I want to go back to Eden because Phil's never been. But this song, I think, is from the perspective of Adam. Um, it says, when the first light brightened the dark, before the breaking of the human heart, there was you and there was me. Innocence was all I knew because all I had to know was you. We were running underneath the trees. I remember how you called my name and I would meet you at the garden gate, how the glory of your love would shine. And I remember when the stars were young, you breathed life into my lungs. I never felt so alive. I want to see you face to face where being in your arms is the permanent state. I want it like it was back then. I want to be in Eden or Sweden, like I sing it sometimes. But um, <laughs> so things get worse. Sin continues to corrupt people. You just sense from that song, I think Phil wrote it beautifully, just this breaking of the human heart. Just Adam, think about it, knowing that he helped cause this. And then think about Adam watching one of his sons murder his other sons, the first murder. And just Adam probably feeling responsibility. If me and Eve wouldn't have eaten that fruit, our son wouldn't have died. It's our fault. We did this. I mean, Adam lived so long. He lived, I think, to be about 900 or something. Imagine just living that life and seeing all this sin around you for 900 years and realizing that it's your fault, that you're the one who caused it. Adam must have lived a tragic life. Things get worse and worse, and it gets to the point, again, where we saw in the video, God realizes something has to be done, and he floods the earth, kills everybody on it, which is it's funny because we look at Noah's Ark in the little children's Bible and it's like Noah in a boat with like a rainbow and it's just like yay and you don't realize that there's like corpses like just hundreds of thousands and millions of corpses floating in the water probably like Noah's Ark I feel like kids aren't ready for it like we should just not teach kids Noah's Ark because it's like 
like everyone dies. Like there's no other Bible story where like everyone on the entire planet dies. Um, hey, Billy, we're going to learn the story where everyone dies. Yay, rainbow. Um, it's crazy. Anyway, so from that point, we get to another co- covenant, which is known as the Noahic covenant. And if I'm mispronouncing that, some of you guys went to Bible college, Scotty, Amanda, Austin, Brooklyn, you guys all went to Bible college longer than me. So if I'm mispronouncing these things, I'm so sorry. But it's either the Noahic covenant or like the Noahic. It's probably not the Noahic. Um, so God makes a covenant afterwards where he says, listen, look at that rainbow in the sky. That's a sign. I will never destroy the entire earth again with the flood. And this was an unconditional covenant. What an unconditional covenant is God is basically saying, I'm going to make an agreement and I'm going to hold my end of the bargain, even though I know humanity won't. So God's saying, I love people so much that I'm going to promise that I'm not going to destroy the entire earth again with a flood. I'm not going to get to a point where the world gets so corrupted that I'm just so fed up with them that I destroy the world. I am going to make an agreement that I'm going to love you and I'm going to continue to help you and I'm going to give you a promise of a future and hope, even though I know that the world is just going to get bad again. And he seals the covenant with a rainbow. So, we know the story. That's the story in a nutshell. The question is, where do we see Jesus? And this, to me, is the most exciting part of the series because Jesus is the main character of the Bible. Absolutely. If you've ever wondered, like, when you read a book and you're thinking, okay, in this book, what does the author have to say? Like, what's the point of this book? Uh, You read the back, you know, of the book, and you're trying to figure out, like, what's the point of this book? What does the author really have to say? With the Bible, you have to understand that Jesus is what God has to say. Um, Jesus is God's final word on everything, on love, on death, on spirituality, on sin. Jesus is like God putting forth, like this is everything of who I am and how I feel wrapped up, embodied in one person. So Jesus is the main character of the Bible, the hero of the Bible, the savior of the Bible, and we find him everywhere. So let's see in this story, where do we see Jesus? The first part, well, the first thing to understand is that the Bible is not a book about moralism, which is lessons on what is good or bad. Some people read it that way. They open up the Bible thinking like, okay, like time to find a lesson on do not disobey. Or I read Cain and Abel and uh, don't kill your brother. Be nice to him. Okay, I can do that. Or uh, pride is bad because Tower of Babel is bad. Or I should get into animal husbandry because the ark and Noah. Like We can think this way. But there is a central theme and story in the Bible. It's all about redemption and it's all about Jesus. It's one story about God creating his family, loving his family, losing his family, and fighting to win his family back. It's the greatest story ever told. So one thing you need to understand is there are moral lessons in the Bible. But you need to read the Bible differently if you're reading it just that way. Because you can read and go, okay, like, time to open up the book that tells me what the bad stuff is so I can not be bad, and what the good stuff is so I can be good. Uh, Bible, Christianity. A lot of people who view the Bible that way grow up leaving Christianity because they think it's all just about rules and right and wrong. To me, when I understand the story of who Jesus is and what he's done for me and the fact that he's loved me since back at this point in history that God knew 
I would exist and loved me and laid everything on the line for me and for you, that makes me want to know, okay, what is God like? What is he not like? I love him because he first loved me. I don't want to do those bad things because I love him, because I understand him. What is he like? I want to do those things because I understand him. It's a much healthier way to view the scriptures, I think. In Colossians 1.15, it says, He is the invisible image of God, or the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. This is where we see Jesus. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Genesis. In John, we read, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God. In Colossians 1.15, it says, He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. It's talking about Jesus. For by him, all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, wherever thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. So this is exciting because it tells us in the beginning was God, but God and Jesus are together. And Jesus, we think of God as the only one there at the creation moment, and Jesus was like in his room in heaven, like hanging out, like, hey God, what are you doing? Creating the world? Sweet. I'll join you in about 2,000 years. Like, we can think of it that way. Like, what was Jesus doing? He's with God. The word was with God in the beginning. So Jesus is there. He's creating with God. He's just crafting the world and enjoying the beauty and just fellowshipping with God and the Holy Spirit, the Trinity, creating. He's there. And the Bible says that through him, all things were created and for him. And I just imagine God, like, just him and Jesus creating things and Jesus looking at God and God looking at Jesus and God just being like, isn't it beautiful, my son? I I made it for you. Oh, it's so amazing. And they're just rejoicing together how great this world is. In the Bible, it says the Trinity, God and Jesus and the Holy Spirit, when they made man, they're like, they're like partnering. Like they get together and they're like, oh, this, what should we do? Let's create man. Let's create him like us. Let's make him like the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Let's give him attributes of all of us. It'll be amazing. It'll be wonderful. It's so cool. So we see Jesus at the beginning of the story. Absolutely. Another thing we see is through Adam. Many Bible teachers have taught me over the years that Adam is a type of Christ. In Romans 5.14, Paul says, Adam, who is a type of him who was to come. And let's just look at some comparisons. The first Adam turned to the father in the Garden of Eden. The last Adam turned to the father. The first Adam was naked and unashamed in the garden. The last Adam was naked and bore our shame on the cross. The first Adam's sins brought us thorns. The last Adam wore a crown of thorns. The first Adam substituted himself for God. The last Adam was God substituting himself for us. The first Adam sinned at a tree. The last Adam bore our sins on a tree. The first Adam died as a sinner. The last Adam died for sinners. The first Adam lost the tree of life. The last Adam is the tree of life. The first Adam was the head of the old creation. The last Adam is the head of the new creation. The first Adam was created in God's image. The last Adam is literally the image of God. The first Adam was to reign over all the earth. The last Adam will reign over all the earth forever and ever. So there's more. Uh, I'm not going to, because it's a really long list, but look it up. It's so cool to see the comparisons because 
God creates Adam as the first man, and he's like, let's make, I'll make him in my image, and he'll be like me. But Adam fails. He fails to measure up. He's an imperfect human. He can't reflect the image of God properly because he's flawed by his sin. But then Jesus shows up, and he's the perfect reflection of who God is. It's, it's amazing. So the next thing we see is the idea of sin, enveloping the human heart, corrupting our godly nature. We're supposed to be like God. It's that sin that keeps us from properly reflecting God's nature, and it prisons us to our wicked desires. It leads us to disobedience, and it questions God's authority and wisdom, and ultimately it leads to death. Sin will kill you. And there's people who will be like, don't do drugs because it's sinful and it'll, you'll die. Some people might do hard drugs or, or drink themselves stupid or smoke until their lungs are black or just sleep around all over the place until they die from some disease. But here's the thing. Some people actually do drugs and sleep around and whatever and like they actually live lives where they're like happy on earth and like they're like everything's great. Like, But ultimately they die and they're separated from God forever. That's the thing. Some sinners live a life on earth that's just horrible and their life reflects their heart and it's dark and it's horrible. Some sinners actually, like the Bible says, it's crazy. God, why do you uh, shine your sunshine on the good people, but also the bad people too? Like, it's crazy. There's some bad people who actually live lives that seem kind of cool. Maybe you felt that way. You're looking at a sinner, somebody who's just living this life of debauchery and evil, and you're like, I've always heard that sinners have terrible lives and they're empty inside, but this guy actually seems pretty happy. The reality is they all die. And when they do, they are separated from God for eternity. No one can escape death. Everybody dies. And it matters what happens afterwards. Sin is a disease. Some people, it kills them really fast. Other people, it's a slow burn, and eventually it gets them. You need to understand, sin always, always leads to death. Don't be deceived when you look at somebody who's sinning and their life seems good. It kills. So here's the next place we see Jesus. In Genesis 3.15, God's going through this curse, okay? Adam and Eve sin. God shows up and he's like, you've brought this on yourself. This is the curse of sin. And he starts saying to Adam, this is what's going to happen to man because of sin. He starts saying to the snake, snake, this is what's going to happen to you. He says to Eve, this is what's going to happen to women because of sin. In Genesis 3.15, in addressing the serpent, Lucifer, he says, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and hers, and he will crush your head and you will strike his heel. He's saying, listen, there's going to be a fight. There's going to be a great fight between God and Lucifer. I'm sending somebody known as the snake crusher. See, he's giving a promise of a deliverer, of a redeemer, of someone who will destroy the snake. This is a prophecy in Genesis about Jesus. This is the first time in the actual story where the character of Jesus shows up. It's And Adam and Eve are probably like, what are you talking about? Like, there's going to be a child crushes a snake's head. Like, what does that even mean? But God knows it's a prediction that one day Jesus will come and crush the enemy. So the next place that this isn't a direct reference to Jesus, but I think it's easy. It's interesting to see the comparison. We're talking about this guy named Lamech. In Genesis 
4, 23 through 24, Lamech says to his wives, he's singing this song, and he says, Hey, listen to me, my wives. Hear my words. I've killed a man for wounding me, a young man for injuring me. If Cain avenged, or if Cain is avenged seven times, then Lamech 77 times. He's a warrior, and he, he goes around bragging about how many people he kills. And he's like, if someone attacks me, I'm going to strike them 77 times. I'm going to bring that much pain into their life. Fast forward to Jesus, and it's such a difference. In Matthew 18, Peter comes, and he's probably been having a fight with some of the other disciples, and he's like, hey, uh, verse 21, and he says, Lord, how many times shall I forgive my brother or sister who sins against me? Like seven times, and then they're done? And Jesus answers, I tell you, not seven times, but 77 times. In man's heart, there's this desire to just full force, just, oh, I'm going to strike you back 77 times more with my, you know, strength and manly crushing, or I don't know, whatever. I don't know what I'm saying right now. Jesus says, let's forgive, let's love, let's take that energy where we want to destroy people and let's convert it to like, let's love them that much. Well, what if they've hurt me or wronged me? Love, love, love. Jesus what he has to say is love. God is love. Let's love the people around us. So, another place that we see Jesus is in the idea of him being the Lamb of God. And it's just very simple that in John 1, 29 through 42, in there, there's a verse where John the Baptist says, hey, behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the earth. In the Garden of Eden, when God provides this lamb for the slaughter, and that lamb's blood covers the sins of the people. It's a reflection of the future to come where Jesus would be the sacrifice and where his blood would take away all of our sins. I'm going to skip this because we're running out of time. So the next place where we see Jesus is in the story of Noah. So we've got this ark, right? And the ark is supposed to take people away. It's a wooden flotation device, but it's also a wooden salvation device. It's provided as the only way of escape from death. It's like, hey, there's no other way. You've got to get on this ark. That's the only way. Um, it required people to leave everything behind and put their faith in the ark, in the object of the salvation. It was re rejected by many. It was seen as foolish. It was trusted by some. Noah and his family. Not many people trusted the ark. They were thinking Noah's crazy. However, the ark was an incomplete tool of salvation. It could only rescue the body, not the soul, from eternal death. The water's coming, the floods are coming, the ark is taking people away, but that doesn't actually do anything about the sin problem in their soul. And we see that as soon as Noah gets off the ark, he plants the vineyard, gets drunk, and does sketchy stuff, because he's a sinner. God knew the only way to have a perfect tool of salvation, and salvation actually just means being saved from something bad, being rescued from something bad. So God knew the only way to have a perfect tool of being saved from something bad was to insert himself into the story. So when we see the ark, we see a foreshadowing of the cross, which is another wooden salvation device. It was provided as the only way of escape from death. It required people to leave everything behind and put their faith in the object of salvation. It was rejected by many. It was seen as foolish. In 1 Corinthians 1.18, it says, The cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but it is trusted by some, those who love God. And it is a perfected tool of salvation through Jesus. It's able to save people from physical death and eternal death. It's able to restore a relationship with God. It's able to free us from the slavery of sin. And it's able to give hope and purpose to our lives. And it has everlasting effects. What the cross does can never be taken away. So, God does justice and mercy. We're going to be going through this a lot. 
God is perfect in his justice and he's perfect in his mercy. Because we can look at God killing everybody on the earth except Noah and think, God is terrible and mean and harsh and cruel. How could he do that? We need to understand that the Bible says every one of us deserve death. Like that is what we deserve. That is absolutely the punishment that is meant for us for our sin. But God did not wish that anyone should perish. And so God is just this perfect combination of when he kills somebody, it's justice. They deserve it. But he also is perfect in mercy where he is able to provide mercy and a way out for people. And that is amazing that God even allowed the ark to be built, that he even saved one family, that he didn't just start over. And the cross is justice and mercy because the penalty for sin is death. When Jesus died on the cross, God was fulfilling the justice part of it because someone had to die. All of us were supposed to, but Jesus is perfectly man and perfectly God and his death is worth the death of everybody. When he died on the cross, that death was worth all of our deaths. And so when Jesus died on the cross, he perfectly fulfilled the requirement of justice that someone had to die, that we had to die. He fulfilled it. And then the mercy part is that he offers it to us and he allows us to receive it. And we're going to keep seeing that, the justice and the mercy. The final thing, and we are running out of time, so I'm going to just go quick. What part do we play in the story of God? We inherit God's nature. This is what you need to understand. You're creating God's image, so you've got the creativity, the goodness, the love, and the character of Yahweh. You're created like him. And this is something that I think is actually really interesting. Some of you guys growing up, like me, you probably heard your whole life, like, you know, hey, like, don't do art, because you can't make any money doing that. You need to go to a school for business and become a business person and do all these business things and make money and get a boat. I love a boat. Um, What's the first thing God does? In the beginning, God created. What's another word for a creator? Artist. God's an artist. He's also, you know, good at business and he's a king and ruler and all this stuff. So you can do those things. You can go to business school and reflect God through what you do. But understand, those of you guys who like art and you like drawing or writing songs or playing music or poetry, writing or whatever, like you're reflecting God's nature in that. God is an artist. The first thing Jesus does in history is he creates something beautiful. Understand your desire to create comes from God. You're made in his image, and you're given a desire to create as he does. Art can and does glorify God, the original creator. And here's something, really, I'll just say this really quick. When God created the world, he didn't slap a fish sticker on it. You know what I mean? And he's like, this is a Christian world. And then the other planets were like the secular world. And it's like, you can't look at Mars and appreciate that. It's not the Christian planet. Um, just understand, like, like, you can listen to a song written by a non-Christian, you know, and it's like a love song. As long as it's not like dirty or whatever, but it's, if it's just a love song, who created love? God did. So you can listen to this beautiful love song and you can be reminded of God's nature and love. I love just appreciating art and, and films and paintings and just artistic things. As long as it's not sinful and stumbling and there's a lot of that out there and you got to avoid that. But artists, they don't know it, but they're reflecting God's nature. They've been created, they've been created in the image of God and I love art made by Christians because it's so easy to just like hear the song and just be like, yes, I'm in the presence of God or like watch a Christian movie. You're like, oh, that makes me think of God. But I love just objectively viewing everything in the world and just going like, man, I want to find Jesus in this movie. I want to find Jesus in this song. I want to see where's the reflection of God's nature in this. So moving on from that. How God or no, God has made you for a purpose. 
God in his great plan and purpose has made you in the way that he desires, says Alistair Begg. God made people out of dust. God made them because he desired to love them. God wanted a family. God made them and gave them a great purpose to build his kingdom on earth. And God wanted to share his kingdom, all the good in it, with his children, with you guys. You need to understand that all the forces of darkness can't stop God's purpose and plan for your life. It says spiritual inspiration. <laughs> I don't know who that guy is, but that's a great name to call yourself. So even though the original plan of Eden was interrupted by sin, God's plan to have a kingdom with his children is still going strong. Satan has tried, but neither the forces of the enemy or mortal men can stop God's plan and purposes. God's will always wins. You are a part of this plan. So in Luke 17, verse 20 through 21, once on being asked by the Pharisees when the kingdom of God would come, like, hey, Jesus, this kingdom you talk about, when will it come? When will it come? Jesus replied, the coming of the kingdom of God is not something that can be observed, nor will people say, oh, here it is, or oh, it's over there. Because the kingdom of God is in your midst. So here's what Jesus means by that. Wherever Jesus is, that's what he's saying. Like, hey, I'm here, so the kingdom of God is here. Wherever Jesus is, that's where the kingdom of God is. If you have Jesus in you, the kingdom is there. If believers gather in Jesus' name, that is where the kingdom is. So right here in this room, the kingdom is here. Jesus is here. There's coming a day when we're going to fully see God's plan of a perfect heaven and earth come one day. So that's, you know, you, you, you hear your whole life like, you're going to die and go to heaven. Yes, like we will one day. Either we die or we'll end there by God taking us there and we live it out. And God rescues us and brings us there. But someday we're going to see the kingdom of God fully realized. And we're going to be like, this is amazing. But Jesus says, hey, it's actually here in a form. And you need to look around you and appreciate that the kingdom of God is around you. Disciples of Jesus look forward to that day and we live lives in preparation for it. So what does it look like to live in that knowledge? Well, in Ecclesiastes 9.10, it says, whatever your hand finds to do, do it with all your might. What did God give Adam to do? He gave him a job. He wasn't just like, Adam, I have made you. Now play Xbox. Just enjoy it. Just Minecraft. Your way to heaven. Do it. No, God creates Adam and he gives him a job. He says, take care of the earth. Animals create a family, have friendship with God, obey God. So how does that apply to us? God has put you here for a reason. There are things you're doing that matter. School, work if you have a job, family, friendships, maintaining your friendships, art and creativity. You're reflecting God's nature through that. Hobbies, going out in nature and appreciating God's glory, like, and obeying, obedience, like listening in your heart, God, what do you want me to do today? How can I bless you today? How can I love my family today? In 1 Corinthians 10, 31, it says, do all to the glory of God. The most important key is our friendship with God. Because that friendship, listen, if you haven't heard anything, like understand that this big story we're talking about, this big story of the world and creation, God is thinking of you in this story. The most important key is our friendship with God. Being friends with God allows all of this to be possible and to be done out of love instead of religious duty. Again, not just like, okay, what's the good things? What are the bad things? How do I be a good Christian and make sure I check off all my lists? Understand this story is about God loving you from the beginning of time. Like, I, when my wife is like, Aaron, I'm really hungry. I need a treat. I'm not like, oh, I gotta do it because I'm a husband. And if I don't, I'm not being a husband. That's what a husband does. So I guess I gotta do it. Or I'm not being a husband. Like, that'd be terrible if I had that attitude. Sometimes I do, if I'm honest, because I'm a sinner. 
But most of the time, hopefully, my, rea- my reaction is like, oh, because I love my wife. And even though I'm in my pajamas, I'm going to just get in clothes and go to the ice cream store and get her a treat because I love her. That's the relationship God wants with us where we're, he's just blessing us all the time and just like just giving us just grace and forgiveness and guidance through life and help. And in, in exchange, we're like, oh, God, my life is so great because of you. What can I do to serve you? How can I help? How can I love people? How can I lay down my own rights to serve other people because I love you? That is what God is looking for. So. We're almost done. Understand how God feels about sin. This is another part you can play in the story, is understanding how God feels about sin. And just very quickly, think about sin. It's not just like this cute little like, oh yeah, like you messed up, you sinned. No, sin started the war in God's kingdom. It is the weapon his adversary, which is his greatest enemy, uses to attack his children. It is the prison that enslaves the world he loves. It's the poison that slowly kills his people. It is everything he hates because it hurts everyone he loves. It's the rejection of God and his perfect love. It separated him from his family, and his only son was brutally killed because of it. It's this symbol of everything that he hates and fights against. So imagine, how many of you guys know what happened in World War II? Hitler and the Nazis and all that. Okay, so imagine that you're a Jewish dad or mom and you've got a kid and you've been through the Holocaust and you were in a prison camp. And then your Jewish son comes in the room and he's got this tattooed on his neck. That's what living in sin is like. This would be a really awkward time for someone to walk in right now. They're extremely awkward. Yeah. Uh, they're like, you're fired right away. Okay. So, but no, seriously. Sorry. I mean, there's, there's weight to what we're saying here. When we sin, it's like, it's like wearing a tattoo. Like, I'm not talking about just like messing up here and there and like asking for repentance. If you're here today and you're just living a life of sin and you're just stumbling and you're not, you don't care, you're not repentant, that like, think of what God has done for you. It's like tattooing that on your neck and just being in front of him after all he went through. In the story of Noah, we see that God is always looking for a remnant. That's someone who's not perfect, but someone who will honor God above all else. Someone who will trust him and follow him. Right now, God is looking for who in this room is not going to live a perfect life because they can't do that, but who is going to put their trust in the perfect one who loves them and is going to live a life where you obey God and you ask God, what do you have for me? God, here I am. Send me. What can I do for you? So, in the destruction of the flood, God thought of you and a future where you could be saved from death. In this horrible event, God had you on the mind because he knows everything and he sees the future. So while he was just wiping out everyone, he knew a future would come where a perfect plan of salvation would be provided. Keep that in mind, that God has always had you on his mind and his heart. You're not just some random blip out in existence. God has always loved you. So, this, really quick, I'm, you know, church is out, but I'm, take two more minutes, two, like literally, we can do this really quick. This is the summary of everything, okay? The big picture. So, God creates the world for his children to share with him. Through Jesus, all things were created, and for him, all things were created. God creates a perfect paradise on earth and begins his family. That's a weird picture of God. I'm, I hope he doesn't look like that when we show up. Like, oh my gosh. <laughs> um, Lucifer, in his pride, starts a war in heaven, and he and his followers are cast out by God. Lucifer poisons God's family with the disease of sin, causing them to die spiritually. 
God is separated from his family because his holiness cannot dwell with sin. Adam and Eve leave the garden. A promise of hope is given. One day, the hero of the story will come and crush the snake Lucifer and restore all that was lost. Sin corrupts the entire human race to death and destruction. God provides not only justice, but mercy through an ark. Noah and his family are saved from death and start new. These events foreshadow the hope that is to come through the cross, the event where Jesus crushes the serpent once and for all and provides a way of escape that lasts forever. We in God's family live for the day that God completely reveals his kingdom and restores us to perfect paradise. While we wait, we live our lives for him and his glory. So, that's the big picture. Pray.